You're listening to Ants Talk. My next guest had a life-changing event happen when he was just 18. Philip Stevens was enjoying summer just after finishing high school when he dived under a wave at a Sydney surfing beach and broke his neck in the surf. After six months in hospital, he began his new life in a wheelchair. Thank you for joining me today, Philip. How are you? Very well, thank you. And yourself? That's good. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. So, Philip, tell us about that fateful day. I did what I'd been doing all summer, and that was enjoying the surf and the beach. Yeah. I'd been at the, uh, it was a northern, one of the northern beaches in Sydney. I'd been there longer than my friends, and I was sitting on the sand just watching them surf. When my best mate came in, sat beside me and said, we're going home. I just said to him, oh, well, if you hang on a minute, I'll get the sand off and I'll come up to the car with you. So with that, I stood up. I ran down the beach, dived into the water, and I didn't realise there was a sandbank. I th- my hands went over the sandbank and my head went into it. Wow. Uh, I didn't realise at the time, but I was instantaneously paralysed. And I was floating face down, eyes open, and I could see why, I could see a couple of arms around me, and I wondered why they weren't moving me. And I recognised the watch on the arm to be mine. And obviously then I realised they were my arms and I realised I was in deep trouble. So I thought I should hold my breath. So literally that's what I did and hoped that my friends saw me. Wow. Uh, they did. And they rolled me over. Well, they came in, rolled me over, carried me out. By the time I got to the sand, I'd, uh, I'd stopped breathing. So Owen uh, got going with a mouth to mouth. And uh, one of the other guys ran off to get the lifeguard to come back with some oxygen to keep me breathing. They uh, radioed for a helicopter, but this was 1978 and there was only one. Mm. It was a Monday and it was in for service. Uh, Things didn't look good from the very beginning. Then uh, ambulance to Monavale Hospital, then to Royal North Shore where I was. uh, They determined I had a broken neck and that was the start of six months and four days in uh, the spinal unit at Royal North Shore Hospital. Incredible. What were your first thoughts when you came to and realised the extent of what happened? Uh, it's a, it, it was an interesting process because the doctor told my parents not to tell me and nobody told me what? Uh, what, what was going to be, what my limitations were going to be. But they said that when he asks, he will already know. And one day, probably about four weeks, maybe five weeks into the journey, I said to my father, I'm not going to walk any, well, this is what he told me, I'm not going to walk anymore, am I daddy? And he just looked at me, sort of burst into tears and said, uh, no. And with that, we both had a bit of a cry. And apparently, since uh, having heard from my sisters, from that day, I didn't speak about it again. I went silent for two days and then just moved on with the, the treatment I was getting in the hospital. Mm. Um, the, the thought, pro- I don't know what my thought process was at the time, but I know the priority for me was keeping in contact with my friends and, and family. Yeah. Wow. Well, funny enough, I've got a, quite a large family. My mum comes from a family of 12 kids. So I haven't even met half of my cousins because they still live up in country Queensland. I now live in Adelaide. 
So we've never really crossed paths. And funny enough, um, I got a call because I, I was living in Sydney up until six uh, years ago. And I got a call that one of my cousins, who I did meet when I was younger, but spent very little time with him, had been in a car accident and was also in a wheelchair and in Sydney. So I started to go and visit him and just, I'd go over maybe twice, three times a week and basically just get him out of the hospital, go for coffees, go for lunch, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember from the first weeks when I, when I turned up to meet him again, how crushed his spirit was. It was really crushed and I could see that. And then over the time that I kept sort of going and visiting him and just spending time with him, getting him out and about. And I suppose he sort of came to the realisation that even though he was now in a wheelchair, his life wasn't over. There was still stuff to, to hope for and to dream about and to aspire to. Now he's doing a lot better than he was and he's gone back home to Queensland, et cetera, et cetera. But I really do get the gravity of it. It's, it's such a, I mean, absolutely life-changing event. Yeah, it was for me. I was only 18 yeah. and I was, I was you know, at the age of 18, I was only basically a youth and I was discovering life for myself before my accident. Mm. And then I had to discover a whole new life, um, you know, with the, and the, the, big, the biggest impact I think was the lack of independence and the, the lack of spontaneity and how dependent you were on, on oh, I was on other people for everything. Yeah. I was very fortunate in that my friends lived close to the hospital so they could visit me a lot. So unlike your, your cousin, I, I was surrounded by friends the whole time. So I never really had such a down period. That's and they, so they kept good. me up and they were incredibly supportive. And the family, of course. Yeah. Um, I'm really lucky that I had an amazing, amazing mother and, and sisters. But uh, it was, it's, it's that that kept kept me going mm. and kept me positive. The, the staff in the hospital were very conscious of my need to keep in contact with my friends. So they let me skip some rehab to go and watch my mates play football or maybe you know, just do something that was a little bit unusual and not in the normal uh, rehab process, I suppose, that they want me to go through. Yeah. So back then, I was there was no rule book. I don't believe there is a rule book for an accident or a life changing event like this. So I was just lucky enough to be able to create my own rules and you know do what I wanted to do from the very very beginning. Mm. So what were the major setbacks you first noticed? Oh, absolutely the the loss of independence, yeah. the dependence on other people, um, the, the lack of spontaneity. I. I was a year older than a lot of my friends and I was always the one at the age of 18 with a car to pick them up and drive them places to parties or beach, wherever. And I realised that I wasn't going to be able to do that. And that was something that really, really affected me. Mm. And somebody said to me once, well, you know, they're older, they've got a licence now. You can still organise parties, you can still organise functions. Um, and you just need other people to move you around. Mm. Um, that was that was the biggest thing. The the definitely the independence, the loss of independence. Because I think what a lot of people don't realise too is it affects so many aspects of your life, like your sexuality, and even simple stuff like going to the bathroom. It's I remember the ordeal for my cousin just to have to change catheters and stuff like that each day, and 
getting getting infections from that, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, it's, it really well, is it, a trial. Yeah, going through that, I mean, the morning process for me back then was about two hours before you, from bed to being able to leave the house, maybe. Now it's more like three hours. You're relying on people to do the most intimate things for you. Um, you refer to sexuality at the age of 18. You know, you're doing things you might want to go off and do stuff you don't want your parents to know about or, you know, you muck around. Well, that, I couldn't do any of that. Yeah. You know, so that, that, um, that didn't ha start happening for me until, you know, a few, few years later because you have to rely on people to get you somewhere. It's hard to meet people. Um, it's hard to wander up to a, someone at, at a, a girl at a bar if you um, when you front up with a wheelchair, you can't just sort of be subtle about the way you approach somebody. Yeah. That's yeah. a very, very, very different situation. I bet. And then, of course, there is all the, all the medical stuff that goes with it. There's um, those intrusions in your life. And where can a wheelchair fit? Where can't it fit? Um, so many different aspects that you really, I wasn't aware of when I was in the hospital and it just developed over time. And you learn to, well, for me, I just learned to deal with it, accept it and accept the things that could change and use those. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I've really become more aware about wheelchair accessibility because my mother had her leg amputated, um, oh, I think it was about three years ago. And we actually went to Queensland for Christmas and we booked this Airbnb and we specifically asked them, does the place have stairs? And they were like, oh no, there's only one, one or two small steps. And so we were like, oh great, we'll take it. When we turned up, there was actually a set of about 12 stairs. So when my mother turned up for this Christmas dinner, we literally had to pick her up in the chair and carry her down them. Um, and another friend of mine who's a huge, who, who was a huge campaigner for people with disabilities, Quentin here in Adelaide, that was one thing he was very passionate about because there's so many places that don't have accessibility to, for wheelchairs. And it's quite ridiculous because in reality, you guys need to get around and get into places as, as much as we do. So I just don't get how it's not a blanket priority. I really don't. No, I, I totally agree with you. I can understand some places, uh, if they're an old building um, and they haven't, haven't been developed or refurbished, mm. but what really gets me is when it's an old building it, and it might be a restaurant around here in Manly where I live and they refurbish the restaurant or whatever it happens to be and there's a step outside and they don't put in a ramp. It's not um, required because it's a refurbishment. Mm. If it's a new building, they have to put in a ramp. But I don't understand a lot of that. You, so you're quite correct. Even travelling, I go through all sorts of questions and backwards and forwards to hotels and you ask, can you fit a wheelchair? Can you roll a wheelchair under a shower? Mm. And you come back, yes. And you get to the hotel and you find the shower is in the bathtub. Oh, so it's, um, people just... A lot of people don't understand and don't get it. No, you're quite right. Yeah. It's funny, you know, I mean, even going back to that point of refurbishments and stuff, look at buses. Buses never had ramps before. Now they've actually created something that they can attach to the bus, pull it out, and a wheelchair can get into the bus. So really, there is no reason why everywhere can't have something like that. That's my belief Absolutely. anyway. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally agree with you. Oh, I was going to say, I totally agree. I mean, I've, I don't use buses much, 
But one day it did take me three buses to get somewhere because the first two, the ramp didn't work. Yeah. So that's the other thing. Have it there, but make sure at least it's fun- operating. Functional, Even yeah. only one person wants to use it. Exactly. Tune in each week for Ant's Talk to learn about real-life stories, celebrities and everything in between. But also, this um, this all never sets you back, Philip, because I also know that you travel, that you've travelled and have done such things as scuba dive, skied, parasailed. You've actually done, you sound like you've done more than I've done. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, I have, I've had, my first overseas trip was at the instigation of a, a mate of mine who'd already taken me to Noosa and he said, let's go somewhere overseas. Went to Vanuatu and that, that was fascinating with its own challenges. But the big one was Europe, managed mm. um, by my cousin who lives in France. And I just discovered a love of foreign countries, culture, food, and then the, the activities. The, um, the, the scuba diving came about because I had a carer who was from the United States. He was living in Hawaii. I went over and stayed with him. And he said, you're going scuba diving. And I went, uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> and he explained and we discussed it. And I thought, well, it all sounds good. And I just put my faith in him. And, uh, and that's where that came about. So the, can I just, uh, sorry, can I just ask there, was that the first time back in the water? No. Oh, getting back in the water is a, a really interesting story. Really. I was really keen to get into the pool in the hospital. Yeah. And they put me in on the Monday and I was terrified. I've never been okay. so scared of anything in my life. And I stayed there for as long as they wanted me to. And then I simply refused to go back. I spent the next two days telling myself that I was stupid. I loved the water. So I went back in on the Wednesday and my reaction was even worse. Wow. And that was in sort of during winter. And then I, when I was home the following summer, I thought, I love the water. I want to go somewhere that I'm familiar with, uh, with friends that I can trust. Yeah. So I got two friends to very secretly, not tell anybody else, to put me into their swimming pool. And that was an incredible success. So oh, that was the first so time back in the water. And now I, lo- I love it. Yes, I'm scuba dive, the parasailing. Um, that was up in the South China Sea. Up, I was staying in Guam. So that was out over the water. I've got actually no fear of the water, which is a bit surprising, I think. That but uh, I, I love it. Yes. But I also... The, the reason I've been able to do all these crazy activities is just I've had good friends and I trust them and I'm yeah. pretty adventurous, I guess. Well, definitely, I would say. <laughs> I can't see. I mean, it, myself, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm actually, I fear scuba diving. I don't know why, but I've got this real fear of deep water and going sort of underwater. So I don't know if I could actually do it. I'd do the parasailing. I've done the skiing, but the scuba diving just freaks me out a little bit. No, I, I, I like it because you don't have to keep surfacing like you do if you've got a snorkel in your mouth. True, yeah. And that's that's the big thing for me. And yes, you can go a little deeper, and you but it's, you're there for longer. And for me, it's less effort. Yeah. Because either way, somebody's got to drag me around and make sure that I'm breathing. And um, but no, I, I just I just loved it. That's so good. So about your trips to Europe and Asia, what are some of the highlights? Uh the highlights. I think I've fallen in love with. Uh, ancient civilizations or ancient ruins. So, mm. you know, going to Cambodia, uh, wandering around, wandering around, being dragged up all the stairs involved in at Anch- the Angkor Wat ruins, um, wandering around uh, the, the Mayan ruins in Mexico. And uh, then, of course, it all really peaked when um, I had a couple of friends who 
oh, we, we went to Egypt, loved, loved that, fell in love with, I was more impressed by the Valley of the Kings, I think, rather than uh, the pyramids, which were obviously amazing, but I was more impressed by the artwork in the Valley of the Kings. Yeah. But um, I think the real, the real hit was when my friends took me up Machu Picchu. Yeah, so that was my next question, actually. Oh, okay. Tell us more, because I, I'm even about Egypt. I mean, I've always been fascinated by Egypt all of my life. It's one of it really is one of the things still on my to do list. Um, oh, I, I, I definitely do it. The uh, the travel warning isn't too severe, but mm. uh, no, getting getting to the pyramids, they are they're incredible. They're um they are enormous. Uh, but my my friends were able to get me. They carried me up over the massive boulders that they used to build them wow. uh, to the entrance. Yeah. So I got into the, the pyramids, which is fascinating. That's that so was just cool. an achievement that I felt I really wanted to do once I got there. I didn't think I'd be able to before I left. Yeah. And then the, the Valley of the Kings is just, um, it's dramatic. It's so old and the artworks lasted so long. It's, it's incredible. Do you find but, that you, when you were there, you got a, I don't know, like a unique feeling? Did it, did sort of the history and what we know of it, did it sort of, I don't know, go a bit skin deep almost? Yeah, especially wandering around the, the temples in the, in the valley, around Luxor, because mm. they're just, they've got 21 metre high columns. You think, how the hell did they get them there? Back I know. Without, and what did they use? They didn't have, if you built, built something these days, everybody would go, wow, that's incredible. But we've got cranes, we've got, you know, you, you name it, we've got it to create things that size. But what, what, what makes me crazy is that we've got all this modern technology, but we barely make things look as good <laughs> anymore. It's, I mean, because visually they're amazing. And I, and I don't think anything we build these days are going to last quite as long either. No, exactly. But, uh, just, and how they, how they dug in, how they engraved into the granite. And, because granite's pretty solid, so... Mm. What do they use to dig into the granite? They can use granite to dig into the limestone or the, to carve into limestone, but no, that, that was crazy. Yeah. But just yeah, just fascinating, fascinating. And what about Machu Picchu? Tell us more about that. Um, Machu Picchu was just something, something else again. It's something I always wanted to do. And I just, like before, I was finding the right people to, to get me to these places. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend of mine. He said, oh, well, you know, let's do it. And another mate said, you know, love to come along. Um, I'm really keen to help you do that as well. So I was, we, we, just, we just did it and it was exhilarating, it was exhausting, it was every uh, it, 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 mixed emotions. And at one point the guys put me down and walked off and I didn't understand why, but they just wanted to tease me a little and they turned me around and there it was. The ruins were just in front of me. But it was six hours of carrying me up these stairs. Then, of course, what goes up has got to come down. So there was another, I was like three hours of carrying me up and then three hours of carrying me back down again. You got some and amazing I, friends there. Oh, I do. Yeah, they were, they were incredible. And uh, we were also very fortunate that we had a great guy that we didn't know we were going to have. And he helped. He carried the wheelchair while the boys carried me. <laughs> That's so cool. But, uh, yeah, oh, it was. It was but those, you, you look at those and you see where they are, they're high in the Andes, they're, you know, they're remote. How do they get the rocks where they got them? How do mm. they build them? What was their life like? Um, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's just, I don't know, 
I get speechless and emotional when I start to think about oh, it. it such a crazy day. So in the in those environments, is uh, so are your friends almost becoming your carers also. Well, these these guys actually started off as carers, right? And and still are, but we're far more um, friends than carers. Oh, so good. The, the looking after me aspect is just something that they do. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, and sort of a bit of a by the by. The the reason they're there is to really go on these adventures or enable me to do things that I. I want to do or need to do. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, the same. Yeah, that that goes with my friends that aren't carers, mm. but or start off start off as friends, and then sometimes they become a carer. Yeah, um, but they're all just. But these two guys have just got something special, I think. Yeah. Now I also know that you've foregone a trip to China because you're about to embark on another adventure through Malta, Sicily, Sardinia, and Mykonos. Yes. How exciting is that? That's, yeah, that's pretty out there. It's, uh, China was, has always fascinated me by the Great Wall. Uh, the Entombed Warriors, my mother went to those back in the 80s. Yeah. So I was really excited to go and get to the top of the Great Wall, have a look at the Hallelujah Mountains where the um, Avatar was inspired. And then, yeah, like I said, the Entombed Warriors. But then the... Um, the coronavirus hit and fortunately my travel agent just didn't book the ticket. So then it was, well, wow. I've got this time set aside. So where are we going to go? And we That's had already nice. been to Mykonos and which was obviously a party island. So Mykonos is just exciting and fun. Yeah. But then um, going to Sardinia and Malta, Malta especially, I've seen so much just about it and the culture and the mix of the, the Europeans and the Africans and the, the food, it just get the, the buildings I think are going to be colourful. Sardinia, I've been to Rome, but I think it's just going to be very, very different. So that's, yeah, that's really, really exciting. Yeah, I bet. I've actually been to China. I went to China a couple of years ago. So I went to Beijing, Shanghai, Xiamen and Hong Kong. And to be honest, when I, before I left, I thought I was absolutely going to hate it. I was expecting what you see in every capital city's Chinatown mall, ducks hanging in the window. That was the environment I was looking at. Um, when I went over, I was blown away by the absolute beauty. Technically, it's just um, so advanced and amazing. The people were really lovely. The place was so clean. I, I absolutely fell in love with China, I must say. And also, I was supposed to go to Mykonos many years ago. And the travel agent I booked through was a trainee and she booked me to the wrong island. And I ended up in Lesbos, which wasn't quite as glamorous, nor a party island, nor anywhere I would want to visit again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Fortunately, that hasn't happened to me. But uh, uh, my, my, my problem getting to Mykonos is like as alluded to before is finding a hotel yeah that has the facilities so where i might want to go and party unfortunately is a very long way away from the hotel no. that has facilities for me but these guys uh the hotel says it has facilities for disabled guests but it's actually there are four stairs from the street up to the hotel and then it's all level yeah every time we leave the hotel or come back in these guys have got to cart me up the stairs but yeah, so I'd recommend go back. You'll 
enjoy partying in Mykonos. Oh, man. So. <laughs> um, it's funny, though. I mean, just thinking about that, someone really should come up with a, a website or an app where it shows you wheelchair-friendly cafes and galleries and accommodations, and someone really should be doing that. There'd yeah, be quite I, a success I'm, in it. Yeah, I think you're probably quite right. Mm. Uh, although, there, with me, I when I was uh, at... Uh, the, the the Acropolis, um, or the, the Pantheon in um, in Athens, the guide there apologised to me for um, there not being any pathways. And sometimes in these ancient ruins, it's nice. I don't mind if I can't get all the way over it because I want to see it as it was. Yeah, I don't really want to see it with a very nice path or thing wandering around that could just detract from it. Yeah, um, no, that's true. It's uh, so it's a hard thing, but I think uh, for a lot of people, having an app or a website or something where you can go that shows everything that is available would be incredibly helpful. It would be. What advice would you offer to someone else finding themselves in this situation? Oh, I've um, I was very lucky, like I said, with the family and friends I had at the beginning, mm. and I wrote my own rule book. And I think that's the thing: if you if you know what you want to do and you believe you can do it, so surround yourself with the people that are going to enable you to do that. Yeah. The people that maybe have the same ambitions or interests or thoughts or lifestyle interests as you. So you, you can do it. Don't be put back because somebody says, oh, are you sure you want to do that? The answer is obviously, yes, I do want to do it. Yeah. Um, you want someone that says, that's a great idea. Uh, I want to help you or how can we do that? So it's um, believe in yourself and have the confidence to, to take the journey that you want to follow as opposed to what somebody else may have done and failed. And um, yeah, don't, don't be put off. I've always said you can't live life wrapped in cotton wool because I like getting out and you know, being a bit adventurous. But yeah, I just trust yourself and find people that can help you do what you want to do. And life can be incredibly fulfilling. Good advice. Good advice. And I also know you'll be soon launching your memoir titled My Lucky Break, which actually describes your life before and since the accident. What does it mean to you to tell your story to other people? Um, the book came about because a lot of people have been saying to me prior to Machu Picchu, you should write a book about your, your, your life and your stories and where you've been and what you've done. Mm. And I never really thought that what I was doing is anything too fantastic. But then when people became so interested about Machu Picchu, I thought, hang on, this probably is worth telling and it might help some people. So it is a story about before my accident, after my accident, the impact of my accident on the family, uh, the family dynamic, the <laughs> losses that my sisters um, experienced by my parents being focused on me and then it talks about uh, my time in hospital and my travels adventures and going to work and going to uni that covers all aspects of my life um yes a lot of my friends laugh there was a chapter there on my sexuality and how to um how i dealt with that but i believe if I, if, I, if it can help one person by reading the book um, I'll be a, a very happy chappy. Oh, I think you're going to be helping a lot of people. 
I don't think that they've got to be in the situation that you've been in to actually get something from the book. I think that what you've done is extremely inspiring for any person. So it might be someone that's dealing with something just completely different, but what you're doing with your life and the way you're living it will inspire them to do it themselves. I think it's amazing. That's very generous. Thank you. Not a problem at all. Now, also, where can people find out about you? I know that you've got a website. It's iamphilipstevens.com. And that's Philip with one L and Stevens with a PH. Exactly. It's a very interesting name because it can be spelled a different way. So, but yes, www.iamphilipstevens.com. Fantastic. And, and also the book's available for pre-purchase now online, both the hard copy and as an ebook. And people can reach out to you personally via the website also. Absolutely. Yes. That's fantastic. Philip, thank you so much for coming onto the show and telling us a little bit about your story. And um, I do hope that people go online and check you out and get in contact and have a look at the book. I think that um, what you're doing is amazing. And I'm, I think you should be very proud. Thanks, Ant. Very much. Very no worries at all. Thank you so much, Philip. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.